Hello everyone and welcome to the November 13 edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarn & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. 14 AIG-related insurance companies have filed a federal lawsuit seeking restitution from nearly 30 named fraudulent medical providers. The complaint pieced together evidence that exists across existing criminal and civil litigation to allege that the defendants fraudulently or illegally made claims for payments for providing workers' compensation treatment. The 22-page federal lawsuit filed at the end of October lists nearly 30 entities as defendants, including Michael D. Drobot Sr. and Michael R. Drobot Jr., Daniel Capen, M.D., and many others. What stands out in the AIG lawsuit is its reliance on either admissions filed in plea agreements in other cases made by federally indicted and convicted parties, or the deposition testimony already taken in related cases. In other words, much of the evidence relied upon by AIG in their suit was available in plain sight in plea agreements or discovery in other litigation. For example, paragraph 47 of the lawsuit quotes the, that the Drobot Sr. plea agreement in which he admitted he conspired with dozens of doctors, chiropractors, marketers, and others to pay kickbacks in return for those persons to refer thousands of patients to the Pacific Hospital for spinal surgeries and that he fraudulently inflated the price of medical hardware purchased by Pacific Hospital to be used in the spinal surgeries. And paragraph 48 of the lawsuit says that defendants Randall admitted in his plea agreement that his company, Platinum Medical, paid kickbacks to physicians for referring workers' compensation patients for toxicology tests. Paragraph 49, for example, quotes from Randall's March 9, 2016 deposition in another case that he negotiated contractual agreements to pay physicians compensation for those doctors performing spinal surgeries at Pacific Hospital. He went in that deposition to testify that there were many such agreements. Linda Martin admitted in her plea agreement that she conspired with dozens of doctors, chiropractors, marketers, and others to pay kickbacks in return for referrals of hundreds of patients to the Pacific Hospital for spinal surgeries. Documents produced in other litigation then say that Dr. Capen, either directly or through his companies, received monthly reimbursement for the referral of business. In other words, the evidence pled in the AIG lawsuit is in plain sight. It is not hard anymore to piece together the parts of a puzzle found across a variety of criminal and civil actions that show the big picture needed to prevail in a recovery action by an insurance company. The County of Santa Clara and the County of Orange filed a lawsuit against various pharmaceutical manufacturers and distributors, including activists and Watson Pharmaceuticals-related companies, to seek redress for the costs of the opiate epidemic. They allege the companies engaged in a common, sophisticated, and highly deceptive marketing campaign designed to expand the market and increase sales of opioid products by promoting them for treating long-term chronic, non-acute, and non-cancer pain, 
a purpose for which the companies allegedly knew its opioid products were not suited. And the city of Chicago brought a similar lawsuit in Illinois with the essentially same allegations. The Chicago complaint alleges the city's workers' comp program and health benefits plans have expended about $2.4 million on addiction treatment services over two years. Some of the companies purchased general liability policies from the travelers' insurance companies, including the St. Paul Fire and Casualty, but the two carriers declined to defend the drug companies. And then travelers filed suit to obtain a declaration that it had no obligation under its insurance policies to defend or indemnify their insureds in connection with the California action or the Chicago action. The California trial court agreed and found that travelers had no duty under the policies to defend the drug companies. The trial court concluded that the California and the Chicago complaints do not allege an accident as required by the definition of occurrence or event under the policies required to create a duty to defend, and that the products exclusion precluded coverage for the Watson claims. The Court of Appeal affirmed in the published case of the Travelers Property Casualty Company of America versus Activists Incorporated. The Court of Appeal concluded that the policies covered damages for bodily injury caused by an accident, a term which has been interpreted to exclude the insured's deliberate acts. The California action and the Chicago action can only be read as being based on the deliberate and intentional conduct of the drug companies that produced injuries. The relatives of a private contractor killed in last year's massive Sobrains fire near Big Sur have given up on pursuing their wrongful death lawsuit against the state of California. 35-year-old Robert Reagan died after the bulldozer he was operating tipped over down an embankment several days after the epic Monterey County wildfire began in July 2016. His widow, Morgan Kempel, and two young daughters filed a lawsuit blaming Cal Fire for his death. Their suit sought compensatory damages and claimed that the firefighting agency was negligent in supervising operation of the dozer. But a Monterey County Superior Court judge dismissed the lawsuit last month after the family decided to end its legal bid. In court papers, the family lawyer said the suit was being dropped because his clients faced a California law that makes it difficult to win negligence claims against state governments on incidents involving firefighting injuries. The company that employed Reagan was not providing its employees with work comp coverage at the time of the crash, which has made it difficult for his family to receive benefits from his death. Last April, the family's lawyer said the lack of workers' compensation made it tough for her young family to get by. Separately, Monterey County prosecutors have filed criminal charges against the small firm that employed Reagan, Zerban Concrete Construction. Among the charges is insurance fraud and failure to provide work comp. A preliminary hearing in the criminal case is scheduled for December 14. California's Division of Occupational Safety and Health has fined Serban tens of thousands of dollars, and the Contractor State License Board has suspended the company's license. Word of the Reagan's family 
dropped lawsuit comes as a state workplace regulators investigate the private contractor that employed a water truck driver killed last month in Napa County while helping battle the Nuns Fire because it also failed to provide workers' comp insurance. 38-year-old Garrett Payaz, a volunteer firefighter from Noel, Missouri, died October 16 after his truck overturned as he was descending Oakville grade. The California Highway Patrol is looking into the causes of that crash. And now our crime report. The DWC has suspended 21 more medical providers from participating in California's workers' compensation system. This brings the total number of providers suspended this year to 73. Among those suspended was Christopher King of Beverly Hills, the owner and medical billing and medical management companies, and his wife. They were the masterminds in a $40 million conspiracy to commit medical insurance fraud, along with over two dozen doctors, pharmacists, and business owners. King pled guilty in Orange County Superior Court last April to two felony counts of conspiracy to commit medical insurance fraud and felony insurance fraud. King was a co-owner of Monarch Medical Group, King Medical Management, and One Source Laboratories. He recruited doctors and pharmacists to prescribe unnecessary treatment for patients with workers' comp insurance. Also, Marissa Schermbeck Nelson of Torrance pled guilty in July in Los Angeles County Superior Court for her involvement in a fraudulent $150 million workers' compensation insurance billing and capping conspiracy with orthopedic surgeon Minure Ueda. Nearly two dozen patients were deceived by Dr. Ueda and his staff into undergoing surgeries and they were told would be performed by Dr. Ueda, but they were instead performed by a physician's assistant who has never attended medical school. These patients were operated under, the general, under general anesthesia and without Dr. Ueda present in the operating room. The scheme including payments of up to $10,000 a month for illegal referrals. AB 1244, which went into effect this January, introduced new changes to the workers' comp system. It requires the suspension of any medical provider, physician, or practitioner from participating in the work comp system under circum certain circumstances such as cited above. In May 2011, Sim Carlisle Hoffman, M.D., was indicted on 884 felony counts alleging health care insurance fraud in violation of Section 550 of the Penal Code. Hoffman was the owner of Advanced Professional Imaging, Advanced Management Services, and Better Sleeping Medical Center in Buena Park and prosecutors accused him of running a medical mill for the sole purpose of insurance overbilling without providing any legitimate treatment to patients. And there has been years of litigation over the following six years, and now a new Court of Appeal published decision that documents the protracted legal battle. The 2011 indictment was ultimately dismissed in 2013 on the ground that the prosecution had failed to provide exculpatory evidence to the grand jury. Rather than proceed by indictment, the, in January 2014, the prosecutors filed a felony complaint against Dr. Hoffman. 
The new complaint alleged nearly 160 counts of insurance fraud. Now, one and a half years later, after four amendments and two demurs, the people filed a fifth amended complaint. A preliminary hearing began in the case in September 2015 and ended in November of that year. The resulting transcript spanned over 2,300 pages and over 53,000 pages of documentary evidence was submitted. During the preliminary hearing, the complaint was amended yet again. This final amended complaint contained 103 counts, and the defendant was held to answer on all 103 of them. Following the preliminary hearing, prosecutors filed yet another amended information, which included both patient names and references to the preliminary hearing exhibit numbers containing the evidence relevant to the particular offenses. The trial court overruled Hoffman's demur to several of the counts, finding the notice in the information to be adequate included the people were permitted to allege multiple acts that form the basis of each count. It cautioned, however, that there was still work to be done before setting the trial date to ensure the defendant had clarity on what he would need to defend against at trial. In response, Hoffman filed a petition for writ of mandate directing the Court of Appeal to sustain the demur. The Court of Appeal initially summarily denied Hoffman's petition, but the California Supreme Court granted review and instructed the Court of Appeal to issue an order to show cause. The issue then was whether an information may allege a single offense and a single count but describe within that count multiple discrete acts, each of which constitute the charge defense. The Court of Appeal just concluded this month that the information was proper and denied the writ petition in the published case of Sim Carlisle Hoffman versus the Superior Court of Orange County. Each count alleges a single offense. Any complications or undue prejudice to defendants arising from the fact that multiple discrete acts may constitute the charge defense in each count are adequately dealt with by a unanimity instruction at trial or by other tools at the court's disposal, such as a severance of counts or trial continuances where appropriate. A demur on these grounds is not proper vehicle to address the defendant's concerns. Therefore, it ruled that the court correctly overruled the demurrer. 48-year-old Jeffrey Ricketts and 42-year-old Samuel Kim, both of Porter Ranch, were sentenced this month after previously pleading guilty to conspiracy to commit health care fraud. Ricketts was sentenced to 46 months and Kim was sentenced to 25 months imprisonment. In addition, the two owe restitution in the amount of over $1.3 million and nearly $990,000 respectively. Jeffrey Ricketts, Samuel Kim, along with co-defendants Marla Ricketts and Sunyup Kim were indicted for their role in a $38 million fraud scheme centering around the fraudulent distribution of talking glucose meters. The defendants operated Care Concepts, which was based in Metieri, and Choice Home Medical Equipment and Supplies, which was based in Chatsworth, California. 
The defendants paid kickbacks to workers at call centers in California and South Carolina, from which operators would cold call Medicare recipients to convince them to accept the talking glucose meters and related supplies. The defendants caused thousands of claims over the years, virtually all of which were fraudulent, according to prosecutors. Marla Rickerts pleaded guilty in January 2017 to conspiracy to commit health care fraud and was sentenced to five years of probation in order to pay nearly $40,000 in restitution. Sunyap Kim pleaded guilty in September to conspiracy to commit health care fraud and was sentenced to 12 months and one day imprisonment, followed by two years of supervised release. Kim was also ordered to pay $94,000 in restitution. The Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Office of Inspector General for the United States Department of Health and Human Services investigated the case. And in medical news, according to a study by the Inspector General for the Department of Health and Human Services, a total of 14.4 million beneficiaries of Medicare Part D, which subsidizes prescription drug coverage, received at least one prescription for an opioid in 2016. And the Medicare Part D program paid about $4.1 billion to provide them with those drugs. Nationwide, 33% of all Medicare Part D beneficiaries got federally funded opioids in 2016. In Alabama, it went as high as 46%. In Mississippi, it was 45%. And in Arkansas, it was 44% of all recipients. The IG's discovery that 14.4 million Medicare Part D beneficiaries got an opioid prescription in 2016 was also cited in the Government Accountability Office report. The Inspector General's report, it was called Opioids and Medicare Part D, Concerns About Extreme Use and Questionable Prescribing, was completed this July. Some beneficiaries received an opioid and what the Inspector General called a regular basis, and some received high or extreme amounts of opioids. Some beneficiaries also appeared to be doctor shopping in pursuit of opioids. The Inspector General also report noted that a number of prescribers, including doctors, nurses, and physician assistants, also exhibited extraordinary patterns in the opioid prescription they issued to Medicare Part D beneficiaries. The report made several recommendations to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, hoping to reverse these findings. The head of the Food and Drug Administration recently warned that the agency will get much more aggressive with drug makers, potentially forcing companies to pull painkillers off the market. The FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb addressed the National Press Club in Washington, arguing that the current opioid epidemic requires a much more intrusive response from federal regulators than previously expected. Gottlieb said that over the past decade the government failed to address the looming crisis despite being aware of mounting problems concerning opioid addiction. The FDA will enact stricter, stricter standards for their own product review and approval process, including evaluating if the risks for abuse of the drug outweigh the legal benefits of the product. Popular painkillers 
painkillers previously approved by the FDA can be crushed up for snorting or injection. To try and get ahead of it now, the commissioner said the FDA needs to be willing to take much more dramatic action, be much more potentially intrusive than what it thought it might have to do, and what it would have been its comfort zone five years or ten years ago. Last June, for the first time in history, the FDA ordered a drug maker to pull a medication off the market due to widespread reports of abuse. Endo Pharmaceuticals announced the decision to comply with the FDA request in July following an internal review of their drug. The unprecedented move came in the wake of reports patients were crushing up the pills to inject. The move reflects the FDA's new focus on not just the prescribed risks of painkillers, but the risks posed by illegal abuse of the pills. Chronic pain affects up to 20% of people in developed countries and represents not only a profound impact on individuals and their families, but also a sizable burden on employers, healthcare systems, and society in general. Management of chronic pain varies greatly between nations and even within nations. Literature supports a multidisciplinary approach as the standard of care, although various healthcare systems may not always support this concept consistently. But a new study published in the Journal of Pain Research evaluates another safe and effective drug-free treatment option for chronic pain sufferers, spinal cord stimulation or SCS. Spinal cord stimulation, also known as dorsal column stimulation, uses low-voltage electrical stimulation to the spine to block the feelings of pain by way of a small device implanted in the body. The field of neuromodulation for the treatment of pain has been developed rapidly since the seminal paper on the electrical inhibition of pain by the stimulation of the dorsal column was written almost 50 years ago. Patients typically undergo a trial of neuromodulation with an externalized power source, and if this trial proves to be positive and compelling, they subsequently have a subcutaneously implantable pulse generator for the long-term therapy. Spinal cord stimulation technologies are fast advancing, and an update of the literature was much needed. So the newest published study looked at recent evidence for safety, efficacy, and cost-effectiveness of spinal cord stimulation in back and limb pain. In recent years, the next phase in the evolution of neuromodulation has become available with the development of dorsal root ganglion SCS and the emerging use of two novel advances in stimulation frequencies. These recent advances have improved the efficacy and expanded the applicability of SES. The authors reviewed the scientific evidence from three studies looking at the different routes of spinal cord stimulation. They found that the literature supports the use of traditional SES for chronic pain and provides high-quality evidence that dorsal root ganglion SES and Higher frequencies are safe and effective for back and leg chronic pain. The lead author of the study thinks 
The study findings represent unheralded evidence that we can safely treat back and leg pain using spinal cord stimulation techniques. Most importantly, spinal cord stimulation has relatively few side effects compared to other chronic pain therapies and reduces the risk of complications. The study concludes that spinal cord stimulation should now be considered earlier in the treatment continuum and not simply as an end-stage salvage therapy. And according to a new article published in the Journal of Psychiatric Practice, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, or CBT, is a treatment alternative for millions taking opioids for non-cancer pain. They say it is a useful and empirically based method of treatment for pain disorders that can be decreased that can decrease reliance on the excessive use of opiates. And they discuss evidence supporting the use of CBT to avoid or reduce the use of opioids for chronic pain. The goal of cognitive behavioral therapy is to help patients change the way they think about and manage their pain. Cognitive behavioral therapy helps patients understand that pain is a stressor and like other stressors, is something they can adapt to and cope with. Interventions may include relaxation training, scheduling pleasant activities, cognitive restructuring, and guided exercises, all in the context of an empathic and validating relationship with a therapist. These interventions have the potential to relieve pain intensity, improve the quality of life, and improve physical and emotional function, according to the authors. Therapy helps the patient see that emotional and psychological factors influence perception of pain and behaviors that are associated with having pain. The authors cite several recent original studies and review articles supporting the effectiveness of CBT and other alternative approaches for chronic pain. Studies suggest that CBT has a top-down effect on pain control and perception of painful stimuli. It can also normalize reductions of the brain's gray matter volume, which are thought to result from the effects of chronic stress. It can be used as a standalone treatment in combination with other treatments, including effective non-opioid medications or as part of efforts to reduce the opioid doses required to control chronic pain. Unfortunately, cognitive behavioral therapy and other non-drug treatments are underused due to unfamiliarity, time pressure, patient demands, ease of prescribing medications, and low reimbursement rates. Thus, the authors say, there is a need for a paradigm shift from a biomedical to a biopsychosocial model for effective pain treatment and prevention of opioid use disorder. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd's Karen and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.